I, uh, I am so blessed by your pastors, my friends, Jarrett and Jeannie, and it is humbling to be here with you all today and get to share a bit of my story. I'm going to share some hard parts of my story, if that's all right. Um, it was actually 10 years ago this April that I got a phone call from my mom telling me that my brother David had died alone in her basement. He was 37 years old at the time. He died of alcoholism, obesity, and depression. But I've often wondered if the real cause of his death was the fact that he didn't have a community of Jesus followers, myself included, who were willing to enter into his pain in a loving and consistent way. That's why I want to talk to you today about something that we don't talk about very often, something a lot of us don't really like to talk about at all. I want to talk to you today about pain. It's not a fun subject at all, but I believe that how we respond to the pain of others is perhaps the single most important task in front of us if we want to follow Jesus. Now, we are all hardwired to avoid pain at all costs. We avoid our own pain, and we try to avoid being near the pain of other people. In fact, the ability to see a few steps down the road and see pain headed our way is a safeguard for us. It helps us to try to avoid pain if and when it can be avoided. But the reality is pain is inevitable. It's unavoidable. Now, funny enough, I actually made it through the first 25 years of my life pretty much pain-free. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is kind of like growing up in a bubble. It's a safe place to grow up. I had two older brothers who were my heroes, Dan and Dave, two parents that loved me. I went to one of the best schools in town, had an awesome group of friends, a great church family. To be honest, life for me as a kid was pretty easy. In my family, we had grew up kind of knowing there's only two career options for you. You can be a preacher or you can be a teacher. And I got to be honest, I had no intentions to ever be a preacher. So right out of college, I became a teacher. My first job was teaching fifth grade in Kankakee, Illinois, about an hour south of Chicago, in a school very different than the one I grew up in. About 98% of the students in my class came from low-income families. It was my first real experience witnessing poverty of any kind. And then, after my second year teaching, my dad invited me to go on a trip with him to Haiti to train teachers in the schools there. And I'll never forget the first two words I learned in Haitian Creole. Mwe grangu. Mwe grangu. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Young kids would run alongside the cars we were in, kind of holding on to them, saying those words, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Now, as a teacher in Kankakee, I'd seen poverty. The first homeless person I met in my entire life was a 10-year-old girl in the class I taught. But I hadn't seen anything like this. Kids with no food to eat, no safe water to drink, no shelter over their heads, and sometimes their families were so poor, their parents asked them to leave because they'd be better off on their own. It broke my heart. I came back from Haiti with an application to be a teacher there. I kind of felt this tug, like maybe that's how I could help. I could go to Haiti and be a teacher. But I was getting married the next summer, and all my friends and family told me that moving to Haiti as newlyweds was a terrible idea. (laughs) They told me it wasn't safe. And so despite this deep sense that I was supposed to do something to help those kids, To be honest, I froze. I chickened out, and I let fear get the best of me. 
Instead, I took an awesome job with Youth for Christ, leading a high school ministry in Champaign, Illinois. My time at Youth for Christ was amazing, but I knew deep in my spirit I had ignored a whisper from God to do something to help those kids. Well, it was during my first year of ministry at Youth for Christ when I had my first real personal experience with pain. My dad went in for what was supposed to be a routine shoulder surgery. They were just going to fix his rotator cuff. It's real simple, in one day, out the next. But something happened in post-op, and he slipped into a coma. And I remember standing around his bedside with my brothers and my mom, holding hands, praying for a miracle. But it was a miracle that never came. Three days later, my dad passed away in the hospital on Mother's Day. It absolutely shattered my faith. Here I was in my first year of marriage, my first year of ministry, 25 years old. I was struggling to even talk to God. Maybe pain has come knocking at your doorstep a few times. You can kind of relate to what it feels like when your whole worldview gets shattered, your faith gets shattered. What was... Just two years after losing my dad, almost to the day that I got a phone call that changed my life. It was my high school buddy, Mark Smith. Mark was calling to tell me he was going to run the Chicago Marathon, and he wanted to know if I would drive up from Champaign to watch him run. Notice Mark did not invite me to run the marathon with him. He knew better. See, at the time, I weighed about 265 pounds, and I couldn't run around the block. I hated running. But when Mark told me he was running the marathon, I heard a whisper that I believe was the Holy Spirit. And it was just two words. Do this. I was like, all right, God, I guess I'll do this. Despite the fact that I'd never even run a 5K, I got online and I signed up for the Chicago Marathon. To be honest, I had no idea how far a marathon was when I signed up. Uh, To be clear, it's 26.2 miles. Once I figured that out, I was kind of scared out of my mind. I mean, when I tell you I was bad at running, I was terrible at it, right? I was so slow. When I was training, my friends would say, hey, Chewett, I thought you were training to run the marathon. I'd say, I am. Thanks for checking in on me. And they'd say, oh, I keep seeing you all over town walking everywhere. (laughs) I I was that slow. But something amazing happened out on those long, slow runs. I started talking to God again. Now, to be honest, sometimes I was yelling at him. I was hurt and angry, and I figured he had it coming. Sometimes I would just step off the road to the side and just stand there crying. And occasionally, I was just listening to him. And then on October 15th, 2003, I told the starting line of my first race ever, the Chicago Marathon. I remember so clearly walking to the starting line. If you've been there, it's crazy. A million spectators packed into downtown Chicago. All the traffic shut down for one full day. Music blasting. And then 35,000 people nervously walking to the starting line, ready to tackle 26.2 miles. We had one small problem. Mark and I had not discussed a race day strategy. He trained in Montana. I trained in Champaign. He trained to run nine minutes per mile. I trained just to finish the race before they shut it down. (laughs) So literally at the start line, minutes before the gun goes off, we're figuring this out, but we want to run together, so we decide to split the difference on our pace. That went awesome for him. (laughs) That went terrible for me. To this day, that is the most painful physical experience I've ever been through. 
it nearly destroyed me. I pretty much walked the whole back half of the marathon and I barely made it to the finish line. But it changed my life. Not just that day, the whole process changed my life physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And I decided right then, before I even started the race, I will do one of these races every year for the rest of my life. And so when I heard about the Ironman Triathlon, something stirred in me. I said, I got to do it. Now, if you don't know what that is, the Ironman is a 2.4-mile open water swim followed by 112 miles on a bike. Then if you can still stand up, you take out your running shoes, tie them up, and you run 26.2 miles. When I signed up, I didn't own a bike, and I did not know how to swim. (laughs) I know. But I'd seen what fear can do to you. Fear kept me from moving to Haiti despite feeling that call. Fear almost made me quit training for my first marathon. In fact, I've come to believe that almost every amazing thing that God has for us in this life is on the other side of fear. And you have to step through fear to get to it. Well, one day I was on a five-hour bike ride training in the cornfields of central Illinois when I had what I can only describe as a conversation with God. And it went sort of like this. Hey, Michael, you could do these races and help those kids, kids like you met in Haiti. And my mind started racing, and I could remember seeing all these different red and yellow and blue jerseys at all the races I'd been at, all these different charities, people raising money for different causes. But I couldn't remember seeing any charities there that were raising money to help the poorest children and communities on the planet. And I knew immediately that this is what God was calling me to, that he was giving me a vision not to simply take my next race and use it to raise money for children and communities around the world, but that I would have the chance to invite thousands of people from churches all over the country to join me. Then, by the grace of God, I made a few phone calls and stumbled into some leaders from World Vision, and I shared this vision that God had given me with them, and a few months later, they actually gave me a shot. And I became the first Team World Vision staff person, and we launched right here in Chicago at the Chicago Marathon, in 2006. That first year, we only had 100 folks join our team, and since then, we've helped 50,000 people cross finish lines of marathons across the country, and we've raised about $50 million for clean water. You know, it has been humbling because God has given me a front row seat to see the amazing work he does in people's lives when they step through fear to take on a challenge like the marathon. And I've gotten to travel to Africa 17 times to see the amazing, life-changing work that our teams are raising money for. But I've had some more heartbreaks along the way. You know, when my dad died, one of the hardest realizations that I came to was that I was only 25 years old the first time I experienced any real serious pain in my life. And I started doing the math and adding it up, and I said, the longer I live, the more pain and heartache I have in store for me. And at that point, I just wasn't sure I could take any more. It was eight years after losing my dad that my brother David died. Now, David had already been battling alcoholism and his weight, but the loss of my dad really pushed the depression down on him. He wound up spending most of his days alone in my mom's basement where his battle with weight, his struggle with depression and alcoholism finally took his life. Like I said, he was 37 years old. When he died, he left behind four young kids without their dad. 
his young wife without her husband. And then, just as I was kind of getting back up on my feet and catching my breath in life, a few years after we lost David, my brother Dan died. No real explanation what happened. He went upstairs to get ready for his daughter's eighth grade basketball game, and he never came back down. Dan was 45 years old. He was a pastor in Indiana. He also left behind four young kids without their dad, his young wife without her husband. And as if losing my dad wasn't enough, losing two out of her three sons absolutely broke my mom's heart. And losing my two best friends literally crushed my spirit. You know, sometimes people will say to me, Michael, it's so cool that you've been able to take this pain in your life and turn it into something positive for others. And that's true. I feel that sometimes. But sometimes they say it like they think I'm over the grief and I'm past the pain of it. I'd be lying if I said I'm not hurt anymore. I am. Or that I don't get angry with God or feel hopeless. Because sometimes I do. But my battle is to not let have pain have the final word in my story. Because while pain is real, I deeply believe that there is more. A few months after Dan died, I came across a Bible verse that has completely rocked my worldview. It's Psalm 34, 18, and it's just one simple sentence. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Now, I've learned the hard way that there's more pain and heartache in this world for me than I ever imagined possible. But here's the deal with pain. Either you've already experienced this kind of pain in your life, and you relate deeply to what I'm talking about right now, or maybe you are going through the most painful experience of your life right now. Or at some point, you will be headed into one. Pain is inevitable. Now, maybe your pain isn't the same as mine. Maybe it's not the death of a loved one. Maybe it was a divorce in your family, the loss of a job, a struggle with infertility or addiction or depression or some other shattered dream. And like me, you've been hurt and disillusioned in your faith. You've been frustrated or disappointed with God when things went terribly wrong. But the reality is God doesn't promise us a life that is free from pain. In fact, we should expect it. Look at our heroes in the Bible. They didn't live lives of ease and comfort, but their spiritual journeys were forged through times of pain and heartache and suffering. And so are yours and mine. What does Psalm 34, 18 have to say to me when I'm facing pain? The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. It reminds me that when I am brokenhearted, God is close to me, even when it doesn't feel like he is, even when he feels a million miles away, he's there with me. And when my spirit has been crushed, he will rescue me. But you know, it's so easy to get caught up in my own pain, to get turn inward and focus on myself. I can forget that there are other hurting people in this world. When I was a kid, if I wasn't getting my way, I would say to my parents, like you probably did, that's just not fair. And my parents would say, well, guess what, Michael? Life's not fair. 
I mean, they were saying it lightheartedly and joking, but there's so much truth in that statement. Life isn't fair. We want it to be. We compare our pain and hurt and struggles to other people, and if I was just like them, and why do they have it so easy and I have it so hard? But life isn't fair. And after losing my dad, I thought to myself so many times, God, this isn't fair. And one day I was standing in my mom's house in her kitchen, and I said those words out loud in front of her. God, this isn't fair. And my mom, who was hurting herself so deeply, had the bearings to remind me of others in this world who've truly experienced the unfairness of this life. She reminded me that there are kids that are going to die today because they don't have enough food to eat or safe water to drink. She reminded me of refugees fleeing their homes due to war or violence, searching for a safe place to go, and guess what? They're probably not going to find one. She reminded me that there are more people trapped in slavery today than at any point in human history. There are 10 and 12-year-old boys being forced to fight as soldiers in wars they have nothing to do with, and 10 and 11-year-old girls being forced into marriages with grown men. It's easy to get too focused on my own pain. I can forget that there are other people in this world, in my neighborhood, in my community, and on the other side of the planet who are facing unimaginable pain, loss, and suffering. A couple of years before my dad died, my brother Dan gave him a gift for Father's Day. It was a journal called A Father's Legacy. I am telling every single one of you right now to buy it for your dad or your husband or your friends for Father's Day. It is such a treasure. It's a journal where my dad wrote thoughts that were to be left for us. And on one of the last pages, he answered this epic question. What is the spiritual legacy you would like to leave for others? Here's his response. He wrote this on his way home from an amputee camp in Sierra Leone, Africa, where victims of the Civil War who'd had their arms and legs chopped off were being fitted with makeshift prosthetic limbs made out of old truck tires and pipes. He says, several pages in this book were written on my Sierra Leone trip, and this is my last one on the way home. As I sit here in a first-class seat and think back on the people of the streets of Freetown, the poverty now that I've seen in Haiti, Nicaragua, and Freetown has forever changed my life. The absolute luxury we enjoy in America is hard to enjoy once you've seen our fellow man living in poverty, not knowing if they'll have a next meal or when they'll have a meal. What spiritual legacy do I want to leave? Only that we will remember the poor and do what we can to relieve their suffering. You see, there is often very little we can do about our own pain, but there is always something we can do to relieve the pain of others. There's often very little we can do about our own pain. It's there. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try to heal and, and seek help and ask God to heal our hearts, because he can. But sometimes there's not much we can do about it. But there's always something we can do to relieve the pain of others. And here's the deal. If we want to be close to God, we got to go where he is. And if the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, you and I are called to be close to the brokenhearted. The year after David died, I was out to lunch with my friend Tommy. And I was actually trying to talk Tommy into something crazy. I wanted him to run a 56-mile race with me in South Africa. And we were going to try to find sponsors for a 1,000 kids. 
Well, Tommy's response rocked me. What he shared was hard to hear, and it called into question the entire ministry I'd invested my life in. Tommy said he just couldn't understand how I could choose to spend so much of my time and energy trying to help these kids on the other side of the world when my own nieces and nephews had just lost their dad and needed me so desperately. He wanted to know how I could care so much about these kids in Africa. They weren't my kids. They weren't my family. They were other people's kids. I remember sitting there at that restaurant across from him trying to fight back tears. I didn't want to cry in front of him, but I was pretty hurt by his words. I already was wrecked with guilt that I couldn't help my brother kick the alcohol and lose the weight. And now one of my best friends is telling me I'm neglecting my nieces and nephews, focusing on other people's kids. I had to think for a second, maybe Tommy was right. But y'all, Tommy wasn't right. Because to God, there's no such thing as other people's kids. There's no such thing as other people's kids. You see, this is my sister, Josephine. I didn't even know I had a sister in Kenya until 2010 when I met her for the first time. You see, I went to South Africa. I ran that 56-mile race. And then I went to Kenya to meet my World Vision sponsor child, Maureen, and her family. The first time I met them, it was surreal. There were about 200 people gathered from the village to see these Americans who were visiting their community for the first time. Their family had no access to safe water. In fact, they had to walk a couple miles down a mountain every day to get water that wasn't even safe to drink. The child mortality rate in their community was 50%. That meant that Maureen only had a 50-50 shot of seeing her fifth birthday. No access to health care. The school she went to was a wooden box that was infested with termites. And her mom, Josephine, often worried if there'd be any food for the kids to eat. Her family has needs and fears and worries and pain, the likes of which I've never had to know. But while Josephine's been praying for a better life for her kids, back home, thousands of people have been stepping through fear to take on the challenge of running a marathon. Thousands of people have been stepping up to sponsor kids like Maureen, and now everything is changing. Now they have access to safe water right outside their home. They have access to health care, economic opportunities. Maureen's school is now one of the best I've seen in all my trips to Africa. They now have the chance to fully pursue whatever dream God puts in their heart, to pursue his purpose for their lives. Maureen And her family often will tell me, Michael, you guys have been the answer to our prayers. But that's only half the truth. They were the answer to my prayers. You see, Maureen and her family came into my life almost exactly a year after David died, during one of the darkest periods I've ever faced. And while I thought I was doing something for her, to help her by choosing to be her sponsor. My life has been changed in immeasurable ways. My entire worldview is different. The way I understand my own pain and heartache and the pain of the world has changed. The way I understand God's love for me and his love for others has changed. The way I talk to my son and the things I teach him has changed. We pray for Maureen and her family every single day. And I know she's praying for us. And I can honestly tell you, as a result of that one simple choice, 
to step into a relationship with Maureen and their family, everything in my life has changed. This is Maureen with our son, Cruz. Now, if, if you have a kid, I know he's about the cutest. They're like the two cutest kids on the planet, right? They've had a couple opportunities to meet. And I would be lying if I stood here and told you that I love Maureen the same way I love my own son. That wouldn't be the truth. And that's really humbling and hard to say. Because I really deeply believe in my heart of hearts, that's what God's calling us to do. He's telling us there's no such thing as other people's kids. We are called to love others as if they are our family. But what I can tell you is I am learning to love Maureen the way I love my brother Dan and Dave's kids. I'm learning to love Josephine the way I love my sisters-in-law. And the awesome thing is they love me like family too. Are you willing to consider expanding your definition of family today to include someone on the other side of the world, someone like Maureen? Your pastor, my friend Jeannie, is about to do something epic this summer. In fact, it's so big, I don't even think she can really wrap her head around it just yet. It's a big deal. And we have a huge vision for Soul City to step into. In fact, it's something we've never invited people to do before. And I want you to prepare your heart and spirit to say yes. Because I believe how we respond to the pain in this world and the pain of others is one of the best ways we can show our love for Jesus. And when we do, it changes everything. Will you welcome my friend and your pastor, Jeannie? Well, I am so grateful for my friend, Michael. Maybe you have a friend like that, the kind of friend that gets you to do the things that you thought you would never do, and you kind of love them and you kind of hate them. You kind of have a mixture of feelings. Michael is that friend for me. And... Uh, I remember a number of years ago, Michael encouraged me to run the Chicago Marathon, and I ran in 2012, and uh, it was a big deal because I was not a runner, I was not a marathoner. In fact, uh, the night before the race, this is my jersey as I was ironing on my letters. Yeah. <laughs> I was that nervous. I was that nervous to run the Chicago Marathon. I ironed all my letters on backwards. and. I remember standing in our bedroom and I'm ironing, standing there ironing and looking down. And I remember saying, I can't even iron on letters. How am I going to run 26.2 miles? And this is a picture of me uh, picking up my bib, my jersey. And, um, you know, Michael and I often trained together uh, as I was preparing for that race. And, you know, as we talked about uh, the different things that were occurring in his life and the different things that were occurring in my life. You know, we often talked about the story with his dad and with his brother, and many of you know my own story, and um, I lost my dad very unexpectedly. And as we ran those miles all over Chicago, we often talked about how God was using the pain in our lives, pain that we would not have chosen, to help us to learn how to step into 
the pain of others. And what I've come to realize is that how you respond to pain is always a choice. How you respond to the pain that shows up in your life, how I respond to the pain that shows up in my life, it's always a choice. And the choices you make are what make you. The choices that you make in this lifetime are what make you. Your choices will tell the story of your life one day. In many ways, your choices are like the hinges of your destiny. They're like the hinges to your future. And I know for, for many of you, um, you choose a word each year. For many of you, you choose and, and you have an intention. Instead of doing like a, a New Year's resolution, you, you choose a, a vision. You choose a, a hope for what your year is going to look like. And, and I've been doing this for the last, I don't know, five or six years. And um, this last year, I started to get a sense of what God was inviting me to choose. And, and each year, I choose the word that I sense God invites me into, and then I get it um, printed on a bracelet, and I wear it the entire year. And my word for 2019 is the word freedom. And for me, this is a deeply personal word. See, while I know, I know to the depth of my being that Jesus has set me free, the truth is that there are so many days that I don't live free. I don't live into all of the freedom that has been offered to me and I can play small under my own self-limiting beliefs that keep me from full freedom. And as I was coming into this year, as I was stepping into 2019, I just felt God say to me, Jeannie, no more. No more. This is a year for you to live as though you are free. And wouldn't you know, Right around the same time I was choosing my word for 2019, my good friend Michael called me up and asked me to do the next impossible thing. Now, I should have learned my lesson and blocked his number on my phone a long time ago. But Michael said, Jeannie, I want to invite you to go to Africa with me this summer and to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And this is now the picture that lives on my desktop. This is Mount Kilimanjaro. And I remember when Michael invited me, I had this sense from God. And I just felt him say, this won't make sense, Jeannie, but say yes. Say yes. And wouldn't you know, that the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, the peak, 19,000 and some feet, I don't want to count past 19,000, <laughs> is called Uru Peak. And the word Uru means freedom. Of course it does. Of course it does. It's only like God to invite you to climb a mountain like that. And then, of course, the peak is called freedom, right? right. And what's crazy about this is that I know this is crazy. This is crazy. I, I don't have an account at REI. <laughs> they don't know me there. I, I, they don't know me there. Um, I, I don't go camping for, like, my vacations. I would always choose the heavenly bed over a sleeping bag every single time. I know this is crazy, but I knew God was inviting me into something. 
I knew he was inviting me in to step into a deeper freedom. And as I stepped into that deeper freedom, it would set more and more people free. And what I love about our relationship with Team World Vision over the last eight years, we have seen some incredible things done around here. Over 300 people have run the Chicago Marathon with Team World Vision. And what that means is that over $250,000 have been raised so that over 5,000 children could have clean water. That is amazing. It's incredible. I, I love, I love the heart and the passion and, and the vigor of the people of Soul City Church that would be willing to do something like that. But I want to be really honest with you. I love that vision, and yet every single time, one of the things that I have struggled with is I want to know the names of those kids. I want to know where they live. I love that we're a part of seeing 5,000 kids get clean water, but I care about their communities being developed. I care about who they are. I care about their stories. I care about who they are going to become. And so for me, I've thought, God, how can we make this more about relationship? Because the most beautiful relationships are the mutual relationships. And I don't know about you, but, but something changes when it's someone you know, isn't it? Everything changes when it's someone you know, and, th and that's true in everything. When an issue becomes personal, that's when we become passionate. When it personally touches your heart, and over the years, our family has sponsored, you know, four different children with World Vision. Um, Jarrett and I, uh, on our fifth anniversary, uh, we, we sponsored this little guy. His name is Charles, and uh, he is adorable. Um, did you see Charles? No. Can you go back? This is Dorothy. I want you to see Charles, too. This is Charles. Um, so Charles, we were with Charles for um, many years until he actually graduated out of the sponsorship program. Uh, then we also sponsored Dorothy. Uh, we have been Dorothy's sponsor for over 15 years. We actually had the privilege of going to Zambia and meeting Dorothy uh, a number of years ago. Uh, Dorothy is now 22 years old. Look at this beautiful picture of her. Um, and then this is Josiah, who we recently started sponsoring. Uh, he's 10 years old. And what I love is that this last year, our daughter Gigi, uh, she went and ran a 6K for water race with her dear friend and our family friend Ashley. And at the race, she decided that she wanted to sponsor a child. And so she came home, I wasn't there with her, and she came home and she said, Mom, we have another child in our family. His name is Sandile, uh, and this is Sandile. And he's 10, and Gigi is 10. And so there's a child on this side of the world sponsoring a child on the other side of the world. And these kids have been such a blessing in our lives. They are not random kids on the other side of the world. These are kids that we love, that we pray for, that pray for us. And I felt God prompting us as a church to step in deeper, to step in deeper to relationship. And you've heard both Michael and I talk about child sponsorship. And the reason that I am climbing Mount Kilimanjaro this summer is for our church to step into child-sponsoring relationships with a village in Kenya called Mawala. Now, Mawala is located a few hours east of the capital of Nairobi. It's a rural community of approximately 40,000 people, and there are roughly 1,000 kids 
in Moala right now who are waiting to be sponsored. And we want to invite every single person here and every single person online that is watching right now to prayerfully consider sponsoring a child today. You may decide to do more than that. I'm praying that we see over 250 children come into a sponsorship relationship today. And ultimately, when I was upstairs praying earlier today, God just whispered, Jeannie, your prayer is already too small. Your prayer is already too small. Because we want to see these children in Moala come into a sponsorship relationship. Now, you know that at Soul City, we like to do things a little bit different here. Um, and instead of you just walking out into the lobby today and seeing, you know, hundreds of pictures of children and then you going up and choosing which child it is that you want to sponsor, as we said, we want to do something that has never been done before. Because what we want to do today is we want to acknowledge that we all get to choose in relationship. And every choice that we make can be a celebration of the world that we want to see. And we believe that these kids are powerful, that they have voices. And as a church, we want to put that power into their hands, and we want to put the choice into their hands. And so today, instead of you walking out into the lobby and you choosing a child, we're going to put the choice in the child's hand. And you're going to go out into the lobby, and you're going to have your picture taken. And later today, I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to fly to Mawala, Kenya. It's going to take me about 19 hours to get there. And I'm going to show them your pictures. And those children get to make the choice. They get to make the choice. We believe these children, we believe these children are empowered to make a difference, that they have a voice. We believe that instead of just wishing and hoping and waiting for a sponsor to pick them, that we want to empower them to make the choice, to empower them to say, you always have a choice in this lifetime. We want to put that back into their hands. We want to eradicate all of the privilege mentality that can sometimes exist in sponsorship. And we want to put that back into the child's hand and say, you are empowered to choose. And so we're going to put that in their hands today. And I just want to say to you today, there is a child in Kenya that is waiting to choose you this week. Our hope and our prayer is that these children, you know, I was looking at some of their pictures yesterday. Some of them have been waiting for years, literally years, to be chosen. And this week, they get to choose. They get to choose. Now, you have a card underneath your seat. I'd love for you to grab it. There's also a pen that's attached to the Bible there. I'd love for you to grab this card grab a pen and it says there's a child in Kenya who wants to choose you and I'd love for you to flip it over and begin to fill this out and as you begin to fill it out just to to listen to that nudge to listen to the prompting that maybe God is inviting you to open yourself up to listen I'm, I'm going to climb 19,000 feet for these children I'm just inviting you to sponsor them okay 
And as you begin to fill this out, you can simply put your name and check whether you are choosing one child, which is $39 a month. That's a little over $9 a week, a little over a dollar a day. It's probably about what you will spend on brunch today. Maybe you are feeling prompted to do more. Maybe you want to sponsor one child for every member of your family. I know that we prayed about it, and we are going to go out into the lobby after this, and we are going to invite another child into our family. If you're watching online, you can go to soulcitychurch.com slash worldvision, and you can also be a part of this. But after you're done filling this out in a moment, we're going to invite you to go out into the lobby, and we have photo booths all over the church and if you have kids over in Soul City Kids, I would really encourage you to go pick them up and take them so that they can be a part of this. Uh, you know, they've been actually writing letters and drawing pictures for me to take to Kenya with me this afternoon so that I can bring those pictures and those letters to these children this week. And you're going to go and you're going to take this card out to one of the photo booths. And later this week, by the time I finally get there... Um, I'll be staying in Moala, and on Tuesday and Wednesday, we are going to host a party where these children are going to come into one of the churches in the village, and they're going to see pictures of people from Soul City Church. They're going to see you, and they're going to choose to step into a relationship with one of you. And then next Sunday, I will be back, and you'll get to see the child that chose you. And listen, I brought along a picture of the last time I was in Africa. This is what it looked like for me. Um, so I can only imagine what this week is going to be like as I stay in this village uh, in Kenya. You know, as I was packing last night and getting myself ready to go, um, I just kept sensing God remind me. that in the end, every single person, whether you live here in Chicago or you live in Moala, Kenya, every single person wants to be chosen. There's not a person in this room that doesn't want to be chosen. I want to be chosen. You want to be chosen. You want to be seen. You want to be loved. You want to be reminded that you are worthy of love. And what I love about what we are doing this week is we are putting that choice into the hands of a child. And while you cannot do something for everyone in extreme poverty, you can do something for someone. You can do something for someone. And so I want to invite you to stand and, and maybe grab your card and we're going to move into a time of closing and worship. You know, as our... Uh, church moved into our 2020 vision, one of the things that we said was that we want to be a church that could regularly say we have never seen anything like this before. And my hope and my prayer is that your heart is stirred today, that your heart is stirred by God to step into a relationship with a child and that that relationship changes everything and that you say yes to what God is inviting you into. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you that you are close 
to the brokenhearted, that you are close to those that are crushed in spirit. Thank you that you have been close to us, and God, thank you that you are close to these children in Mawala, Kenya. And Jesus, I pray that you would do such an amazing thing in our midst here today, God. I pray that you would stir. I pray that you would move. I pray that you would call some of us to step out of our comfort zones. God, I pray that you would invite us to say yes to you. And God, I pray that it would be a heavenly celebration this week in Mawala, Kenya, as these children get to say yes. They get to say yes to a choice. And so God, we just want to simply say, we are ready. We're ready. Amen.